All right, John chapter 18. Once we get going with our lesson this morning, I'm going to divide it into two parts. I want to talk about Christ first and then talk about Peter and how Peter is an example of oftentimes the things that we are faced with and how absent the grace of God we do fail consistently. Um, with God's grace, of course, we don't fail. And uh, once I get into that, you'll appreciate the hymn that we sang this morning about who was on the Lord's side, because we'll take a look at Peter and ask ourselves, whose side was he on? At one point, he seems like he was on the Lord's side, then on the other uh, point, it seems like he was not on the Lord's side. And so we should appreciate that whenever we are in the flesh, we are not on the Lord's side. So John chapter 18, I'm going to pick it up in verse 1 so that we can have the uh, set all of this in, in context again. I'll read until verse 24. Um, actually, verse 27, verse 27, John 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seekest ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. That's That the saying might be fulfilled, which he spake of them, which thou gavest me, have I lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away to Anas first, for he was the father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple, that disciple was known unto the high priest and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door without. Then went out that other disciple, which was known unto the high priest, and spake unto her that kept the door and brought in Peter. Then saith the damsel that kept the door unto Peter, Art not thou also one of this man's disciples? He saith, I am not. And the servants and officers stood there who had made a fire of coals, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. The high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whither the Jews always resort, and in secret have I said nothing. Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me what I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I said. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? Jesus answered him, 
If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if, I, but if well, why smitest thou me? Now an ass had sent him bound unto Caiaphas, the high priest. And Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. They said therefore unto him, Art not thou also one of his disciples? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, being kinsman whose ear Peter cut off, saith, Did not I see thee in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately the cock crew. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up your word unto us, that we might appreciate ever who Christ is and all that he hath accomplished on our behalf in spite of our own sin. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as I mentioned this morning, I want to break this into two parts. I want to speak first about Christ and uh, then separate that from uh, Peter and uh, who he was and what he did and how he's really a representative of ourselves. But <clears throat> recall from last week, one of the points I wanted to make and that we would appreciate every day is that Jesus is God. In John chapter 18, verses 5 and 6, he told them that he is the I am, a term that God used for himself, a name that God used for himself when he spake to Moses back in Exodus chapter, I think it might have been around chapter 3 or 4, where um, Moses was to go to speak to the uh, Israelite leadership in Egypt and tell them who God was and what God was going to do. And upon telling these people here that he is the I am, everyone went backwards and fell to the ground. It was a wonderful demonstration of who Christ actually was and the power that was within him. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, the Lord uh, speaks of himself in the narrative as the Almighty. And so we might think to ourselves, well, okay, he is the Almighty, but that was after the resurrection, and maybe there's a little something different. But there's nothing different here. Christ um, has always been God. He is the Anointed One. He is the, uh, the Son of God. And in him, the Scripture says, in him, that, was, that is to say, Jesus dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead uh, bodily. In Acts chapter 20... In the narrative here, um, when um, Paul is speaking to the uh, leadership of the Ephesian church, he says in verse 27 of Acts chapter 20, he says, For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock in the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, to which he hath purchased with his own blood. So he's, all, the, entire, the point of this is that within the context of this, he's speaking of God, Theos, in the Greeks. He's not speaking about Jesus. We know that Jesus paid for the church, but he's saying it is the church of God which God hath purchased with his own blood. It was Christ on the cross. It was Jesus on the cross. So he's telling us very plainly here that Jesus is God. So here in the garden and here at the, uh, in this um, um, I'm going to call it an inquisition because it, they don't follow any proper legal um, procedures here when Jesus is brought before the high priest. He is God. They are talking to God. They are talking to the Almighty. And so we should appreciate that Jesus, who is God, was identified early on in the book of John, chapter 1, verse 29, that he is the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And so here we find him uh, here that he is being led to an ass, um, which is the true high priest um, of the Israelites. Now, with respecting uh, Christ here, there's all sorts of types that are being fulfilled in terms of uh, what Jesus was said to 
what he was going to accomplish and what he, in fact, is going to accomplish. In Haggai chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, it speaks about um, the high priest, or speaks about people bringing an offering to the Lord. And in there is set before us this uh, paradigm where the Lord asks the question about whether or not if you have something holy, if the priest has something holy in his skirt and it touches something that is unholy, will that make the unholy thing clean? And the answer is no. I'm going to pick it up in verse 12 of Haggai chapter 2. If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment and with his skirt do touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priests answered and said, no. Verse 13, Haggai chapter 2. Then said Haggai, if one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. So if, if you touch anything that's unclean, you're unclean. And if you're unclean and you touch anything that's clean, it is unclean. In verse 14, he says, then answered Haggai and said, so is this people and so is this nation before me, saith the Lord. And so is every work of their hands and that which they offer there is unclean. It's an unclean people. Every offering that they bring to the Lord is something they've touched with their hands and is therefore unclean. So everything they've offered unto the Lord is unclean. Now, in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, the Lord says, plainly speaking of everybody, we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So the Lord is setting before us a lesson here that everything that we bring to the Lord is unclean. So the question is, how can God receive an offering that would not be unclean? God has to bring the offering himself. Not only does God have to bring the offering himself, God himself has to be the offering. So we can see in Christ here, we should appreciate in Christ that he is the offerer and he is the offering and he is also the one that receives the offering. So Christ fulfills all of these roles here and so I want us to appreciate that what it says in verse 12 through 14 here of John 18, it says, Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him. And led him away to an ass first. So they're leading him. He is willfully following them. He's going there. He's not being dragged. He's not being picked up and carried on people's shoulders as though uh, that was necessary because he is willfully following them. And as we talked about last week, he laid down his life uh, willfully and nobody took it from him. In verse 13, and led him away to an ass first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. So Christ is bound, and he is led to an ass. Now, imagine yourself, try to picture the scene on the Mount of, of Olives, where I mentioned last week, there was at least 600 people that had come to take Christ. So it's quite a large uh, number of people, and they're all going to go down the mountain and lead Jesus to where uh, they want him to go, and they're going to bring him first to an ass, who's the high priest. But they're going to have to get into the city, and what gate do you suppose they would take the Lamb of God into? but the sheep gate. So that's the most likely gate that the Lord went through. And we should appreciate that that is the most important and prominent of the 10 gates uh, into which somebody might enter into Jerusalem. The Lord had previously entered in and out of Jerusalem through that gate. I say it's the most prominent gate because you recall when the Jews had returned from exile in Nehemiah, it chronicles the rebuilding of the wall around the city. And it begins with the sheep gate and ends with the sheep gate. And the Lord is obviously um, wants us to appreciate the spiritual significance of that gate being on the north side of uh, Jerusalem, that would be the gate through which Christ would enter to be offered as a sacrifice for sin. 
Also, if you were familiar with the Levitical law, you would appreciate that the sacrifice was made on the north side of the altar, although the blood would be sprinkled on the east side of the altar, the Mount of Olives being on the east side of the altar, and Christ there in the garden, east of the altar, shedding, as it were, great drops of blood, sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. So the Lord, in, in various ways, fulfills everything that is required of the law. So he's brought to an ass first, who is the high priest, and there's some confusion uh, associated with that because um, there should only be one high priest, and yet Anas and Caiaphas are both described as the high priest in Luke chapter 3, verse 2, and in Acts chapter 4, verse 6, it lists actually gives four men's names who are listed as high priest, with Anas being listed first. He is the um, true high priest. The high priest was supposed to serve for life. And if you're familiar, again, with some of the particularities in the Old Testament regarding the cities of refuge, that uh, the fact that a uh, priest serves for life is significant. Um, so Anas is actually the true high priest. So why is Caiaphas the high priest? Well, it's common for invading armies and occupying armies to put people into positions of influence that they think will obey them and be... Um, politically aligned with them, be sympathetic to their, to their cause. And so Caiaphas was an individual like that. In um, John chapter 11, verse 47 through 51, we can appreciate um, that with respect to Caiaphas. In John chapter 11, verse 47, we read, Then gathered the chief priests, plural, there should only be one, and the Pharisees at council, and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. In other words, they can see and appreciate what Jesus is doing. As a matter of fact, on this occasion and contextually, he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. Verse 48, For if we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. Meaning, I'm going to lose my job, Caiaphas, and if we don't deal with this and get Jesus under control here and um, put him away, then we're going to lose our jobs. The Romans are going to set somebody else here in our office, and we're going to lose this position of influence and prominence amongst the people. Verse 49, And one of them, that would be one of the high priests, Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, You know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us, this council, that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And so, obviously, there's a prophetic statement here, but Caiaphas is really concerned about himself. He's a political animal, and he's concerned uh, politically um, what would uh, happen to him whether if uh, Jesus were to um, continue with the, in the popularity with the people as he has been. So, quietly and peaceably, Jesus is led like a lamb to the slaughter, fulfilling that which is written in Isaiah 53, um, verse 7. Speaking of Christ, it says he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. And so we see Christ fulfilling that. Literally, he's being led like a lamb to the slaughter. Now, the fact that he is bound also comes from the law and something we should appreciate, being bound and, in particular, being brought to the high priest. In Psalm 118, verse 6, there's a chronology that uh, Psalm 118 helps us to appreciate in terms of the things that are happening to Christ. In Psalm 118, verse 6, we read, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what man can do unto me. To me, that describes the situation in the garden. Jesus was on the side of the disciples. 
everybody is blown backwards except for them. We would have no fear what man can do to me because man can do nothing to us. Satan can do nothing to us unless God um, permit it. So we are ever in the Lord's hand, and he ever does all those things which are for our good. Down in verse 14 of Psalm 118, the Lord is my strength and my song and has become my salvation. Literally, Christ is becoming their salvation as he is bearing the sins of them and going to take them to the cross. In verse 22, what we're seeing with respect to Christ is the stone which the builders refused is become the head of the stoner. This Christ will do through his death, burial, and his resurrection. Now, in verse 27, it speaks of the binding. It says, God is the Lord which hath shown us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords even unto the horn of the altar. Christ is literally being bound as the sacrifice. Verse 28, Thou art my God, and I will praise thee. Thou art my God, I will exalt thee. O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. As the sacrifice, he is being bound and led that he might have mercy upon us. And so in Leviticus chapter 5, Again, speaking about the, the sacrifice that we're seeing set forth before us here in, in verses uh, chapter 17, 1 through 5, um, this is what God tells Moses to tell the people in Leviticus chapter 17. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron and unto his sons, Aaron being the high priest, and unto all the children of Israel, and say unto them, This is the thing which the Lord hath commanded, saying, what man soever there be of the house of Israel that killeth an ox or lamb or goat in the camp or that killeth it out of the camp and bringeth it not unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation to offer an offering unto the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, blood shall be imputed unto that man. He hath shed the blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. If you're going to make a sacrifice and you don't bring it to the door of the uh, of the altar or bring it to the, uh, the t- door of the tabernacle of the congregation, that sin is imputed to you and you should be cut off from the people. Verse 5, the reason I want you to tell this to the people is with the intent that, it says here to the end, meaning with the intent that the children of Israel may bring their sacrifices which they offer in the open field, even that which they may bring them unto the Lord, unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. This is where you're going to bring your sacrifices to unto the priest and offer them for peace offerings unto the Lord. So the Lord here is literally fulfilling this um, requirement of the law. He is the peace offering, and so he is to be brought to the door of the tabernacle. He is to be brought to the high priest, and that is where he will be. That's uh, The priest is to receive that and then um, offer it up unto the Lord. And so when we read Romans chapter, the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, it says, speaking of Christ, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Romans chapter 5, verse 1. We have peace with God through our Lord um, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the peace offering. So in these first two verses here, or these first uh, three verses, rather, uh, that we've been looking at, John 18, 12 through 14, We have to appreciate that Christ is fulfilling these shadows and types in terms of being bound and brought to the true high priest, um, that he will be the peace offering um, for us here. Now, in verse, I'm going to jump over now to uh, verse 19. Now he's been brought before Caiaphas, and Caiaphas is going to uh, 
endeavor to ensnare him. We should appreciate that when a person is brought before trial, um, charges are preferred against them. They just don't interview a person uh, because in that case they might ensnare themselves. And that's why we have Miranda rights in this country. You know, you have the right to remain silent. So they bring him in here with the intent to, uh, and it's called sort of a mock trial with the intent to um, ensnare him. Now, you recall that it was Nicodemus who went and he, um, to the um, Sanhedrin. Uh, this is in John chapter 7, verse 50, and they were uh, conspiring to take Jesus. And Nicodemus said unto them, um, Doth our law judge any man before it hear him, and knoweth what he doeth? So they're not following proper protocol. And Nicodemus had already said that once to him. Hey, do we judge a person before uh, we, we hear them and we um, have uh, charges preferred and set before them? So here they are endeavoring to snare him. And they say here, they ask him a question of his disciples and of his doctrine. Well, why would they ask him about his uh, disciples? These people have been following Jesus for a period of time. But I think what they're looking for is they're looking to see if they can charge him with insurrection. Recall in Acts chapter 5, verse 36 through 37 there, that um, the group has gathered again, and they're questioning what they should do with um, uh, Peter, James, and John, whom they have taken. And so um, Rabbi Gamaliel stands up on the crowd, and he's, he's a politician, and he sounds very reasoned, and he says, well, wait a minute here. Do you remember Thutius when he rose up and a bunch of people followed him? Well, that didn't come to anything. And then there was uh, Judas of Galilee, and uh, he drew a number of people away after him, but he also perished, and uh, the ones that obeyed him, they were all dispersed. So there's this, uh, this idea here that perhaps Jesus is uh, leading an insurrection, and so he want, they were asking the question about his um, disciples. But of course, that is not the case. The Lord is pulling people out of the world into his own kingdom, and our desire is not to overthrow this world, but to sue for peace as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. So then the next thing they ask him about is of his doctrine. And what they desire to do is to have him say something uh, by which he would blaspheme himself. And, of course, the Lord uh, would never commit uh, blaspheme. But people that are deaf and blind to the gospel don't understand um, the gospel, and therefore the things that we say they think is uh, blasphemy. In Acts chapter 24, verse 24... The Apostle uh, Paul, excuse me, uh, Paul, yes, the Apostle Paul is speaking to Felix. And therein he says of himself, he says, But this I confess unto thee, that after the way they call heresy, after the way they call heresy, after the way the Jews call heresy, because they don't understand the gospel, after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. So people that cannot hear the gospel, people that do not understand and appreciate who Christ is, they believe that the things that we say are blasphemy, that Jesus is God, is blasphemy. Um, that's what they believe. And of course, that is not true because he is in fact God. The scripture tells us that in a number of places and he demonstrated himself and proved uh, that he was uh, and is God. So Jesus answers in verse 20, and he says, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whither the Jews always resort, and in secret I have said nothing. So the Lord is telling us here that he spoke openly in the world, and so we should appreciate that if he's speaking to the world, he's speaking to Jews and Gentiles alike. And there's a, um, a 
clue here, if I can use that language, that would help us to appreciate that the gospel message is intended, was ever intended to go beyond the Jews and include the Gentiles as well. He says here that he never spoke in secret, and that's, um, he's um, alluding to, I mean, it's a true statement, certainly, but it's also an allusion to that which is written in Isaiah 45, 19. In Isaiah 45, 19, the Lord is speaking here. He says, I have not spoken in secret. I, the Lord, I, God, have not spoken in secret. In a dark place of the earth, I said not unto the seed of Jacob, seek ye me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. God has not spoken in secret. He has revealed himself in a, in a broad and general sense unto the world by virtue of the creation. Everybody can see um, from the creation uh, certain characteristics and attributes of God. He has not spoken in secret. Um, in Acts chapter 26, 26, the Apostle Paul again is speaking, and he helps us to appreciate all of the things surrounding Christ. Uh, he's speaking to King Agrippa, and in particular here he's speaking to Festus. And he says, For the king knoweth these things, before whom I, before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. For this thing was not done in a corner. This thing was not done in a corner. Uh, Christ was out openly. Thousands of people followed him. He fed thousands of people. Many were, uh, multitudes were aware of the things that he had done. On this particular occasion, it's the um, Feast of Unleavened Bread. And uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, were present. His crucifixion was extremely public in nature. This thing was not done in a corner. Christ is saying, I spoke openly in the world. I've been teaching in the synagogues. And uh, that would mean, of course, that you were there too, and you heard the things that I spoke. Um, Nicodemus, as I had mentioned already, had defended Christ before this particular group. Um, and yet it is in darkness that they have been speaking. It is in darkness and in secret places where they have been conspiring to kill um, Christ. Um, Judas had gone and conspired with the chief priests to take Jesus. These things they were doing, not out and openly, but in, the, uh, in secret places. They were conspiring against him. Contrasted, of course, with Christ, who himself is light and out in the open and speaking to uh, the people. Um, Nicodemus, again, had said, uh, Doth our law judge a man before it? Hear him and know what he doeth. These people knew what Jesus had done, and yet they conspired to kill him. And in the context of what I read here uh, earlier about Nicodemus going to them, um, he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. And what was their response to that? In secret, they conspired to kill Lazarus to uh, try to hide from the world what Jesus had done openly. They have judged and condemned Christ before he's been brought before this mock trial. Uh, there's a saying in the KGB that says, show me the man and I will find you the crime. And that's what's taking place here. Christ is brought before them and they will find a crime with which to charge him, having already condemned him in their hearts. Now in verse 21, Jesus asked the question, why askest thou me? Now, Jesus knows everything about everybody. In Jeremiah 17, 9, it says that our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can know the heart of man? I, the Lord, search the hearts. I try the reins 
even to give every man according to his ways and the fruit of his doings. Jesus knows why um, they are saying the things that they are saying and why they are asking him those questions. He knows they're trying to ensnare him. He knows it's for envy that they crucified him. And he knows with respect to Caiaphas that it's for political expedience sake that they are doing this thing to him lest the Romans come and take away their place. In Hebrews 4.13, the Lord tells us that all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Jesus is the word of God, and he is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So he's asking the question, um, as judge of all the earth, in a provocative way to provoke them to some introspection. He is the judge of all the earth, and he says, ask them that heard me. They were there too, but evidently they did not hear him. So we always have to appreciate that if we hear the Lord, it's by his grace that he gives us ears to hear, though we don't have an excuse for not hearing him. People do not have an excuse um, for rejecting the gospel. The the, uh, gospel is plainly set in front of them, and I can appreciate that they um, can't hear it by virtue of their nature, but they are nevertheless justly held accountable to hear the message. So in verse 22, uh, we can appreciate that they uh, are stumped, and so uh, they're convicted in their hearts here. And so what do people do under those circumstances? Why, they resort to violence, and that's what we see here. They strike him um, with the palms of their hands. If you don't like the message, what do you do? You endeavor to silence the messenger. You try to put them into prison or you try to kill them, and this is exactly what they're going to do with Christ. They're going to try to silence him. They're going to um, uh, kill him, and there's no change today. This is what we see in our country in this day with the First Amendment uh, under attack. We have a large number of people that we would not have believed this 10 or 15 years ago, but we have political prisoners in this country people whose message the government does not want to hear, so they put them in prison. There's nothing new under the sun, says the Lord. Um, We should appreciate in verse 23 here how Jesus answers, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? Jesus does not revile against them. He's ever self-contained. He's ever dignant. He's ever in control of the situation and the circumstances. Because he is... God Almighty. He is the I Am. He could, again with the word, blow everybody backwards and down, but he doesn't because, as he says here, the cup which my Father hath given me to drink, shall I not drink it? Well, the answer is is yes, he shall drink it. And so we should appreciate, and the Lord tells us this, we are being conformed to the image of Christ. He is our example, the example that we ever should follow Uh, And this would be a wonderful uh, example that we should follow, that when he's being reviled against uh, and when he's being attacked, that he does not revile back. But he sticks with the truth, and he's very calmly calm in his response to them. Now, as our example here, now we're going to shift over and take a little bit of a look at at Peter and to see how things go for him here. Um, Again, appreciating that Christ is ever in control and is noble, um, we have Peter set before us here. So I had our deacon read for us the, um, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through, um, I think it was 12. Now, as it says in there, in verse 11, Now all these things happened unto them. In the context here, he's speaking about the Jews when they were wandering in the wilderness, the Israelites when they were wandering in the wilderness. But I want us to appreciate that 
Peter is a contemporary of Paul, whom the Lord inspired to write this. And so Peter is actually living this very thing out. And for our benefit today, that which took place in Peter's life was written for our uh, benefit and for our examples. Now, all these things happen to them for examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. And that's an admonition and a warning that applies to every one of us because we're going to look and see here what happened um, to Peter. Now, you recall that Peter had boasted of himself in Matthew chapter 26, verse 35. Peter said unto the Lord, who had told him that he would deny him three times, he says, though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise said all of his disciples. All of us think we're going to stand strong and resolute in the face of temptation. So they've all jumped on the bandwagon with Peter there. And that's quite a statement for Peter to say. I would, I'm going to die with you. I would die with you, but I would never, I would never deny thee. So which of those two things would it be easier to do Would it, or, or, or more difficult to do? Is it more difficult to, to not deny Christ or is it more difficult to not, deny for, to not die for him? And so we appreciate that when uh, Peter is in the garden here in verse 10 of John 18, that he uh, seems to demonstrate some courage if it's not rash. And I think we can appreciate that he's probably moved into the flesh here. In verse 10, it says, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, it seems like a brave thing to do, but keep in mind that the Lord has just leveled the field here, and Peter pulls a sword. I don't know if this man was, was on the ground when Peter struck him with a sword, but I'm, Peter is moving into the flesh, and so here we can appreciate that he is standing with Christ. And so I think Peter probably thinks, well, he's not going to fall. He's incapable of falling, and he's proven himself uh, to be somewhat uh, brave here in defense of, of Jesus. Now, we get down to verse 15 here of John 18, and it says, And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. That disciple was known unto the high priest and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. Now, who is this other disciple? I think it's Nicodemus. Nicodemus uh, had distinguished himself in John chapter 7, verse 50, where I, I've already mentioned about speaking to the, uh, the group of people there that, hey, do we judge, does our law judge a man before it's time? Nicodemus had come to Jesus at night in John chapter 3, and the Lord had preached the gospel in a very straightforward and plain way to him. He walked in darkness in John chapter 3. In John chapter 5, he's walking in light. And so I think we can appreciate something has taken in a regenerative way, taken place in the life of Nicodemus. He is not embarrassed to go into that place, and to um, he does have a relationship with the high priest. He knows him. So in verse 8, of John 18, the Lord said, let these go their way. He was speaking to the 11 disciples. They were supposed to go their way. There was no call for them to follow Jesus. Jesus should have made it clear to everyone that he was going to go to the cross himself. And so Peter follows. Undoubtedly, Peter's got a confusing set of emotions about what would the Lord want me to do? And how many times have we heard that colloquial term, what would Jesus do? Um, so what does God want me to do? What does God want Peter to do? And so this is something that I think by way of application, every one of us uh, faces. How do I know what God wants me to do? Well, how do you know what God wants you to do? Well, one, you need to discern his will. And so how do you do that? The solution is you pray, you pray, lest ye fall into temptation, and you read your Bible. 
What does the Lord say to do? What is his will in various circumstances? How do other people in the Bible respond to the sayings that we face today? Because nothing has changed. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 40 through 41, the Lord tells Peter to pray. Matthew 26, 40 through 41. This is Jesus has gone into the garden, and he's gone to pray, and he comes unto the disciples, and he finds them asleep, and saith unto Peter. He's talking to Peter in particular. He's the one who set before us here. What? Could ye not watch with me one hour? Verse 41. Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. So he has specifically told Peter to watch and to pray, lest he fall into temptation. Same thing is true for us. Watch and pray. Read the Lord's will, uh, read the God's word to uh, discern what he would do. He has not told that to Nicodemus. He didn't tell Nicodemus to go his way. He's just told the 11 disciples. So again, we appreciate that what he says to you might be different than what he says to me. He's got a different will and for you and a different will for me. Nicodemus, he wants to go there. Peter, no, I told you to go your own way. So Peter gets to the door. Um, Peter stood at the door, verse 16 of John 18. Peter stood at the door. And so here we have an example of God's mercy and providence. Hey, I told you to go. Now there's a door between you and what you want to do. So this is, would have been a good place for Peter to defer, think about what the Lord had said in the garden, think about what the Lord's will might be. He's going to the cross to himself. He doesn't want me to go with him. Oh, I'm not supposed to be here. But what does Peter do? Oh, this is a test. How many times as Christians have we thought that? Oh, I'm being tested here. He wants me to persevere. No, what he wants you to do is pray more to discern whether or not that's his will for you. He doesn't want you to push more. He doesn't want you to operate more in the flesh. He wants you to pray more. And Peter had failed to do that. When he was told to pray, he fell asleep. And he didn't listen to Jesus, what the Lord had said in the garden. So, what does he do? He goes in there, and um, thinking perhaps he might be challenged in some great way, he goes in with the other disciple, um, to whom the Lord had said nothing about going his own way. And we know here in verse 16 that this other disciple knows the high priest. So you would think that Peter would want to affiliate himself with this other disciple. Um, They know he's a disciple. He's gone in there. He knows the high priest. The door was opened unto him. He's got connections. So I would think that you would want to be identified with him because he's obviously not not ashamed to be known as a disciple. And so the door is open, and Peter is let in by the other disciples' influence. And who does he run into when he's there? There's a damsel at the door. It's a handmaid, a servant girl, probably a young woman. She says, Art thou not also with the disciples? Art thou not also one of this man's disciples? Now, that's a, that's a very non-threatening thing, she says to him. And so this is not a temple officer that he's being confronted with. It's not a Roman soldier. You know, this, it's, the whole situation is so benign right here. You would think he would say, yeah, I'm with him. I'm one of Jesus' disciples. But what does he do? He denies Christ before a maid, a very non-threatening situation. And so here is an example of ways that we fall and stumble um, that seem benign and non-threatening, but yet we're sinning against the Lord. We are denying him in, um, in the things that we say, in the things that we do. So, very simple. He'd already drawn a sword, stood up in his own mind as a brave man, and here to a damsel, and very non-threatening, very, very benign, he denies Christ. In verse 18, we see that he's still in the flesh. 
we see that Peter, who once stood with Jesus when he drew a sword, now it says in verse 18 that he stands, stood with them. He's standing with the other people. He's standing with the people that would deny Christ, those that would align themselves and have aligned themselves against Christ. He's standing with those that with whom Judas stood. In verse 5 of John 18, it said, And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. That's where Peter is now standing with them. And again, we have to appreciate simple admonitions from the Scripture that evil communications corrupt good manners. We are not to hang out with the world. The Lord has said that in John chapter 17, verse 16. He says, They are not of the world even as I am not of the world. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. If you hang with people that are of the world, you will deny Christ. You will do things the way that they do things. And in a broad context here, we have to appreciate, you know, what's written in Ephesians chapter 2, that we behaved ourselves and conducted ourselves just as the unregenerate do. People that are in bondage to Satan, people that are in bondage to sin. Um, Verse 3 of Ephesians 2 says, Among whom, among these people... Uh, whom the uh, prince of darkness, um, the prince of the power of the air works in, we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So uh, Peter quickly falls in line with those that stood, uh, with whom Judas stood, the people of the world that stood against Christ. So before Christ came to us in mercy, we all stood with them, and we all warmed ourselves, as Peter's warming himself, we warmed ourselves with the alluring distractions of this world. And so, again, Peter stands with them, and he denies Christ as he warms himself. Now, he denies him again in verse 26, um, by the very one whose ear he cut off. He says, did I not see thee in the garden with him? In other words, weren't you standing with him? Weren't you one of Christ's disciples? And what does he do? He denies him a third time. Now, the Lord had told him that he would deny him three times, So we, but don't think to yourself, well, Peter is doing what the Lord said he would do, and the reason he's doing it is because the Lord said he would do it. Now, the Lord said he would do it because certainly the Lord knows all things, but the Lord knows what's in Peter's heart. He knows what's in every one of our hearts. And knowing what is in our hearts and knowing what is in Peter's hearts, we have to appreciate that Christ yet died for him. In Romans chapter 5, verse 6, it says, And when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Clearly, Peter is without any strength if he would deny Christ before a handmaid that's operating the door. That's our condition when Christ died for us. In verse 8 of Romans 5, God commanded his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Peter is a sinner, and when this is through, in one of the other Gospels, it's going to say, Jesus looks at him, and then Peter weeps bitterly. His heart is convicted with just a look. God is very merciful, and yet, while he um, was a sinner, Christ died for him, and he died for us. Verse 10 of Romans 5, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. And so, Peter is standing with those that would deny Christ. He's standing with those with whom Judas stood. That is, uh, Christ died for him, yet under those circumstances. So, again, we should appreciate how we might all easily uh, fall into sin. And so the admonition in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 10 was, Let him thinketh he standeth, take heed lest he fall. Peter thought he was going to stand. Did he not stand in the garden when everyone else was down, when he smote the uh, servant of the high priest's ear? Yeah, he stood with him, but he, he fell here. And so... 
it's something, one of the things we should appreciate is that what Peter wrote, inspired by God to do so, uh, in 1 Peter 1, 5, where it says, a man, um, it says, um, we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. That's 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. We are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. So the words are written by the inspiration of God and the pen of Peter. We should appreciate that Peter actually lived that. And so he certainly appreciated the veracity of the Lord's statement there. And so Peter here is a lamb among wolves, and he is looking and speaking with a man whose ear he cut off, a man whom the word the Bible describes here who is a kinsman of the earthly high priest, and yet we are kinsmen of the true high priest. And because Peter is a kinsman of the true high priest, which is Jesus Christ, he has nothing to fear because the Lord, the good shepherd, will never lose any of his own because we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. So this morning we have the Lord set before us in the noblistic way in which he um, stood before those that would accuse him of... Um, of blasphemy, they sought for a reason to kill him, and they can't find none. They're going to suborn false witnesses, and they're going to um, eventually they will accuse him of blasphemy when they ask him plainly if he's the Christ, um, and they will say, "What more need we hear? He has blasphemed." Um, and then we saw Christ contrasted with Peter, who is a wonderful example to us that we should learn from it, and that we should watch and pray because that's where Peter's downfall came with respect to everything that's set before us in this morning's. Um, um, verses. He did not watch and pray, and he did not listen to Christ. So let us uh, let us pay attention to that, and let us watch and pray, and let us um, listen to the Lord. Amen. Amen.